Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Carrie Fowler has a job that's so unusual, I didn't even know it was a thing you could do. I guess you could say he saves lives, but not one at a time, like a doctor or a few every week. It's more like none at all, and then one day, somewhere in the future, he might save thousands or hundreds of thousands of lives. So here's how he does it. He preserves seeds. And here's why he preserves seeds. As more and more people have moved away from farming and into cities, the food that we eat is grown by fewer people, by more big corporations. And what they want is food that's standard looking and standard acting. So if you grow apples, you might want some that are big and red. If you grow wheat, you want wheat that's easy to turn into bread. And then over time, food gets more uniform. But once in a while, a drought will come along or a pest will eat all your wheat. And all of a sudden, farmers will wish that they had the old seeds back, but they don't because they weren't as awesome. And so they kind of toss them in favor of better seeds. And that's where a guy who has spent decades preserving thousands of seeds steps into the frame. Kerry Fowler is the former executive director of the Crop Trust. He's now a senior advisor to the trust. Kerry, thanks for being here. Thank you. So you've talked about the idea of preserving diversity among seeds and that being incredibly important. I wonder why. I mean, what kind of keeps you up at night here in terms of thinking, gee, if we lost certain seeds or if we lost uh, the diversity among seeds, this could happen? Every time we we lose a variety of, of one of our agricultural crops, we potentially lose all of the un- unique, or we do lose, all of the unique traits that that variety might have had. And amongst those traits might be disease or pest resistance or uh, adaptation to very high temperatures or drought or whatever. And those are the kind of things that we need in the future. Um, we know that um, that we're getting great fluctuation and warming in temperatures, and that's creating a whole cascade of challenges for agriculture. So every time you lose a bit of diversity, you lose those options and you lose them forever. How often is it, do you think, that we lose like a variety of apple or a variety of rice or whatever? I can't prove it, but you know, I've been working in this field for about 40 years and my gut level reaction to that question is we lose diversity every day. And I I tell people that this is not like losing your car keys or losing your cell phone. This is like losing something that's just never going to come back again. It's extinction. Hmm. And and that's a, you know, that's a whole different kind of ballgame. And why do we lose it every day? Because if there are people like you out there who are collecting seeds and trying to maintain them for a time that oh gosh, we've got a beetle and it's infecting all the, you know, the wheat or whatever, and, and we've got to use something that's a, a strain of wheat that's resistant. If we've got people like that who've been collecting seeds for a long time, then why is it that we lose diversity every day or every week or whatever? First of all, I don't think we have too many people out there collecting like this. You know, the uh, United States Department of Agriculture used to have a full-time plant collector. I don't think they do anymore and don't think they have had for a long, long time. We lose 
um, diversity in two different places, um, in two different ways. And we lose it um, out in the field, particularly in developing countries, which is where most of our major crops originated and where they've had the longest amount of time to, um, to evolve with the environments and the cultures. You see a great deal of diversity of potatoes in the Andes. That's where potatoes come from, or some of our um, food grains like wheat in, in the Mideast, uh, rice in, in Asia and China. And what's happened in those places is that modern varieties, high-yielding varieties, have come in, and farmers have made rational decisions to replace their traditional varieties, low-yielding in many cases, with modern high-yielding varieties, mm. and that's helped build food security. Sure. But the downside of that is that we haven't had programs in place that would collect that diversity that they were growing before they cease growing it and before it becomes extinct. So that's one way in which we lose diversity. And the other way is that if we do collect it, if we have collected it and we put it into seed banks, which is kind of a fancy word for freezers, uh, to conserve it long term, bad things can happen to seed banks. They're in buildings and so you can have fires and floods and people can make stupid mistakes and governments can cut funding and Sometimes they get in the way of wars. Right. And so you can, if you have a unique sample of seeds in a seed bank and something happens in that building, well, then poof, there it goes. You know, one thing that's incredible to me is how people have put even their lives on the line to protect seeds. I mean, there's that amazing story of um, a couple of scientists protecting seeds during the uh, siege of Leningrad, and they starved to death with food near them because they were protecting something. Absolutely right. Going to that seed bank and now what's now called St. Petersburg is sort of like going to Mecca in a way. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a pilgrimage. And during the siege of Leningrad, which, you know, to remind you, was, was about 900 days long and a couple hundred thousand people died. There they were sitting in the seed bank surrounded by the Nazis. And there were about 13 people um, towards the latter part of the war uh, who were staff members of that institute who starved to death rather than boil up and eat the seeds. The, the rice breeder, the person who was curating this large rice collection, died sitting at his desk with bags of rice on the desk. That's incredible. I, I think it's just an amazing story of, of heroism. Uh, I have to ask, did those, did that rice, did the other things that were being protected during the siege of Leningrad, did they get out? Well, they survived the war, basically. Okay. So, um, yes, I mean, that's a, that even today is an important collection, though I would, would hasten to add that there are very few governments in the world, and that's one of them, that really appreciates what they have. So there are very few seed banks in the world that are adequately funded. And that's another reason why you need um, more than one copy of, of each of those seed collections, just in case something goes wrong. You helped found a huge uh, bunker-like seed vault up in Norway, uh, in the Arctic Circle. If I went there, what would I see? Tell me what it's like. Uh, that particular facility, the Svalbard Global Seed Vault, is really different from your normal working seed bank. But 
all seed banks, we often just call them gene banks, are, are large freezers. So this particular one is built at 78 degrees north and is built inside of a mountain. So we're about 130 yards inside the mountain. It's naturally freezing. It's a few degrees below freezing. Right, so right. once you get all the way back in the mountain, you've gone through some security doors and all kinds of things, you you get into a big room that's about I don't know, 90, maybe 90 feet long, about 30 feet wide, and about 15 feet high. And it's been chiseled out of solid rock. And inside, deathly cold. It sounds <laughs> yes. like the... Um you know, secret home of some sort of superhero. Like, this is where they would hang out when they were plotting their comeback. Yes. Yes. I, <laughs> I, there have been a couple of novels written that are along those lines. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Well, there you There's go. Some films, I think, um, that are in the works. But, um, no, it does look like a, a James Bond's kind of setting. Mm-hmm. Yes. And uh, in this room, you have shelves... Um, with boxes and inside the boxes there are hundreds of packets of seed and it's all around um minus three minus four fahrenheit so it's a humbling it's a humbling experience i'll tell you ask what it's like it's humbling Hmm. because you know you have to realize that agriculture is about 12 to fifteen thousand years and this is the product of 12 to fifteen thousand years of evolution all of which involved our ancestors because these agricultural crops are domesticated. They co-evolved with human beings. So it's it's kind of a history of agriculture in a way, but it's also everything it can be in the future. And that's that's humbling. I'm just trying to think about whether people think hard enough about the kinds of events that might lead us to draw on this history and to you know, use some of those seeds that have been cultivated for so long. And I mean, I guess we do ponder terrorist attacks. We do ponder the use of a nuclear weapon or or something so big that you might have to go to a seed bank and essentially get whole new seeds because the ground was ruined. Yes. um, And I'm, I'm not sure I could say it any better than you've just said it, but there is a, there's an interesting um, little side story to this, and that is that we know that years that are unusually hot are years in which there are, of course, problems with agricultural production. And in those years, food prices will go up. And those years are highly, highly correlated with incidents of war and civil strife around Mm -hmm. the world. In fact, if you go back to Arab Spring, you'll find a year that was unusually bad in terms of agricultural production in the Mideast. So if you are thinking long-term about not just food security, but about national security, and what kind of resources the United States and other governments were going to have to put into hopefully trying to build a more peaceful world, then this would be an investment you would want to make. Yeah. Lastly, I've got to ask you, Are there any foods where so much diversity has been lost that you sometimes think to yourself, boy, we are one, you know, infestation or something away from just completely losing the crop? And, you know, people can't imagine it, but it could easily happen. It's only a matter of time. Uh, I don't don't wish doom on any particular crop, (laughs) but... uh, 
Um, you know, there are a couple of crops that are that are in trouble. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. Okay. Um, year in and year out, bananas are 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 a problem. There are a couple of major diseases striking bananas. It's a by the way, it's not just a nice dessert crop that you find in the or dessert food that you find in the supermarket here. It's a staple crop for a couple hundred million people in Africa, and it's about the fourth or fifth most economically important crop in the world. Wow. There's also a major disease, um, wheat stem rust, that's striking wheat right now. This is a mutation of a disease that's uh, mentioned in the Bible. It's associated with famine in the Bible, and it mm. uh, could be associated again with that. Um, when it arose in Uganda in 1999, there was no resistance in any modern variety in the field. So plant scientists have been racing to screen gene bank, seed bank collections to find genes that might offer some resistance to that particular disease, which spreads by spores in the air. And and to go back to your the point you made about bananas... Uh, do you think there's a real possibility that like 5, 10, 20 years from now, we're just not going to have bananas in the grocery store anymore? There, there has been, I'm not a banana expert, but there has been, I know there's been some speculation for some years that, uh, that bananas were so, the commercial form of banana, the varieties you see in the store, so uniform and so vulnerable to these diseases that, um, you know, its days were numbered. Hmm. And there, by the way, there are not many banana breeders in the world. So you sort of, uh, there are only about six people who are working on breeding new varieties of bananas. So you could always tell people that one way to look at it is, well, um, how many people depend on bananas? And that would be hundreds of millions and economically even more. Hmm. But um, how many people do bananas depend on? And that answer is very few. Carrie Fowler is a senior advisor to the Crop Trust. Carrie, thank you so much. This was great. Sure. Thank you. On our Facebook page, we've got a great tour of the Global Seed Vault that we were talking about that's up near the Arctic Circle. You can find the tour at facebook.com slash innovationhubradio. By the way, after I was done talking to Kerry Fowler about seeds and about how they could save our lives, he mentioned that he lives on this little farm in upstate New York, and then he told me what he and his wife grow on that farm. My wife is growing, I think, over 500 different kinds of peppers this year. Whoa! And we probably have 50 or more melons, varieties of melons, um, probably somewhere between 50 and 100 different varieties of tomatoes. So we're, we did try to practice what we preach, let's put it that way. <laughs> you heard right, 500 kinds of peppers. His wife apparently is writing a book on them. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org.